This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. Let's not act like uh, this boils down to a 2016-2020 election endorsement of, of Donald Trump. There are layers to authoritarian reactionary Christians, right? But everybody wants to, to point to, to Donald Trump. Um, you noted its strategies now frequently involved in pushing of democracy to or beyond its limits, a playing in or beyond the gray zone between legality and illegality and a sliding towards autocracy and a sliding away from crucial democratic norms and, and practices. You're kind of alluding to some some forms of endorsement from other countries, but what are, what are some tangible examples within the U.S. that you can kind of point to as, as kind of the layer of complexity around this group and, and how they're approaching this, this, uh, this desire to kind of grab power, if you will, or maintain power? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. 
Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. David Gushy. David is a distinguished university professor of Christian ethics and the director of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. He's the author of numerous books, including Introducing Christian Ethics, Changing Our Mind, and After Evangelicalism. David, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me back, Andy. I believe this is our second or third time to do something together. So, yeah, you you are joining the Three for Club, which is kind of a, a rarefied group. Um, <laughs> there's a fourther and there's a fifther group. I guess that's the right way of saying. It. We're going to soon be like SNL, where you're going to get a robe for for the number of times you've hosted or been on this thing. So, oh, that's nice. I'll look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's only the people we really like that we bring back on multiple times. So. Well, that is high praise, and it's good to be with you <laughs> and, um, and having a chance to to visit again. Well, we're going to get to uh, the new book here in, in just a second, but um, kind of catching up with things in, in, in your world. I think we last had you on, uh, I guess it would have been about a year and a half ago, maybe when uh, the Christian Ethics book came out. So I am I assume you're happy to report that this has now become like the book of Christian Ethics across all uh, theology and philosophy departments across uh, the United States. Um, and uh, what else is going on with you? I would like to be able to report that. Uh, the the book, um, Introducing Christian Ethics, has done pretty well. Um, I, I, I was very pleased to see that um, I, I got a review from Belgium, and the guy said he thinks this is the new ethics intro textbook that he's going to use for his classes in Belgium. So that's cool. I, I want uh, these days, um, you know, I have my teaching appointment in Europe now, too, at the uh, International Baptist Seminary and the Free University of Amsterdam. And so a lot of the last year and a half has been um, getting going with my Ph.D. students and with the universities there in Amsterdam. Um, a lot of travel. Once travel opened up again after COVID, um, a lot of um, speaking and, and doing things uh, around the country and around the world. Um, and uh, a lot of work right now with the post-evangelicals. So so uh, there's a, a post-evangelical church movement, uh, Christian movement being born. And I've been spending a fair amount of time working with, with for example, the post-evangelical collective. So that's something that's a world I would like to see intersect with CBF world in some ways. We Maybe we could make some introductions and you can have some of those folks on as well. But anyway, so those are some things that are going on and we have a new granddaughter. Oh so, yeah. Even better news. Congratulations. Even better. So we have a seven month old granddaughter in our life that gives us three grandchildren and another little baby to hold, which is delightful. Her name is Margo. Okay. Well, Christmas is getting super expensive for you then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hey, That's right. And just, just let me know anytime, you know, you need uh, somebody to join you on those uh, trips to Belgium or, or to Amsterdam. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to help anybody. So my, my small taste of what you're experiencing right now is I get a, a monthly report of uh, when my dissertation has been read uh, in kind of the commons oh, yeah. area from, from George Fox. And it's interesting to see which countries are reading it. And it's kind of like, okay, all right, why? You know, that's the question is why? Like, what research are they doing? What ping, keyword yeah. pinged, you know? So um, I get a little bit of taste of, of of being David Gushy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So. <laughs> it's cool when you see, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who who read dissertations. Like, I mean, they're, they want to be up on the latest and, and they're reading the dissertations before they're published. Uh, 
anywhere else. And so, yeah, that's cool. Uh, and at, at Free University of Amsterdam, every dissertation is made available in that way. So um, hundreds of people read those dissertations before they see the light of the day, you know, anywhere else. So that's really cool. Yeah. That scholarship on the very cutting edge. Yeah. Well, you've got a, a new book that I want to uh, kind of zero in on as, as the main focus of our conversation today. The, the new book is Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. You wrote, our current moment in the United States represents a profound, profoundly troubling existential crisis for many of us who once took the functioning of American democracy for granted. We find ourselves fearful, alarmed, and disoriented. We have experienced psychological distress, frayed family bonds, divided churches, intimidated pastors, and destroyed friendships, all because of politics. Um, I wonder, how, how has this moment affected you personally and professionally? Um, that's an interesting way to start. I, I would say... Um, I have a certain number of years on me, a little bit of mileage on this car. And um, and I remember uh, a very different and cut my teeth on a very different kind of American political scene um, in which, I mean, like, so I have, I got my, my degree in 1993 and um George H.W. Bush had just finished his term. Bill Clinton was president. Um, there's always controversies and, and, and challenges, but we had a functioning democracy. There was a peaceful transfer of power from one party to the other. Um, the defeated candidate came to the inauguration. Nobody attempted to storm the Capitol. Nobody attempted to manipulate the electoral certification. Um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, specific policy issues that needed to be addressed, uh, getting the budget in balance or, um, dealing with the post-Cold War environment in Europe. In other words, normal politics. Um, and, and it was pretty clear what Christian ethicists were supposed to do too. If you had, if you were a Christian social ethicist, your job was to, at least on the political side, to pay attention to the issue areas that were of greatest interest and in training for you, and then to weigh in with policy recommendations. Um, so whether it was say economic justice issues or labor issues or environmental issues or family issues or whatever. And the idea was you submitted your proposals or, or made your arguments um, to the churches and to the public and to the policymakers, and they would maybe listen a little bit and it would be fed into a conversation about what the laws of the land should be. And you'd have congressional hearings about such issues and laws would be debated and passed. In other words, normal democratic politics. Um, so then, you know, now 30 years later, every election, as long as our current situation is around, as long as Donald Trump is in the picture, every election becomes more of an existential challenge as to whether we're going to have another election in four years or whether whether um, we're going to have a functioning democracy. In other words, we've moved into crisis in terms of the functioning of democracy itself. So this book 
is about that crisis and how did we get here and what role have Christians played in getting us here? And what role can maybe Christians play in getting us out of this crisis? Now, one one can say about the first election of George W. Bush is we, we do have that uh, terminology that none of us had ever used before, hanging chads and <laughs> yeah, Supreme yeah. Court decisions, you know. But yes, it, it feels radically different, which, you know, kind of, I guess, draws me to the next question. When you're in a crisis, it's hard to rise above it to see where you've come from and where you are and where you need to go. It can also feel a lot bigger than it actually is. So how do we know that we're in an existential crisis? Um, because unprecedented things have happened in um, our political life or almost unprecedented things. Unprecedented, a president who has been defeated attempting to convince millions of his own followers that the that the election was rigged or corrupt, the big lie. Um, and gradually and then a variety of shady or possibly illegal maneuvers to to um, to change the results, uh, which he has now been indicted for in two different venues. Um, and then a mob uh, uh, rushing to the Capitol, some of them quite well, prepared for uh, murder on that day, January 6th. All of that is new. And and the fact that um, there are millions of people who believe that the January 6th people are actually patriots who were doing the right thing, and um, that the prosecutions of, of them uh, are wrong, and that they should be pardoned if they are imprisoned. Um, so, the instability, the shakiness of the infrastructure and the and the the practice of basic constitutional democracy with free and fair elections and a peaceful transfer of power, that's new. Um, it didn't happen in 2000 when George W. Bush hanging chads, Florida, 537 votes. Al Gore had to certify his own electoral defeat, and he did. And George W. Bush became president. Um, it didn't happen in 1960 when the election between Kennedy and Nixon was so close. And there were some doubts about corruption in that election. But um, Nixon was, uh, was uh, you know, he conceded the election and Kennedy became president. Um, there's also, you know, deeper, and I, the book talks about the deeper ideological currents that have led to um, a radicalization of the right wing and a weakening commitment to democracy itself. And the book also talks about how this puts us in league with a number of other countries in which similar things are happening. So for the first time in my career, I do uh, comparative cross-national uh, work on um, six other countries that are have experienced something similar, and so that's that's that um, the similarities uh, and the undermining of democracy in some of these other countries makes me think we're in a definitely in a new moment in the U.S. We can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. 
How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Yeah, we're going to dig into some of that here in just a bit, specifically some of kind of like the parallel, historic parallels as well. Um, and, and I want to get to the faith aspect of this in just one second, but you know, you asked some tough questions, such as what happened to our country? What went wrong with our religion? Why didn't we see this coming? One of the most important factors you point out is how political forces have shaped our present reality. And you argue political authoritarianism is marked by weakening or loss of popular sovereignty, the rejection of or deconstruction of political pluralism, the entrenchment of dominant individual or party at the center of political life, an end to genuinely free and fair elections, escalating attacks on political freedom and participation, and erosion of constitutionalism, the rule of law, civil liberties, and civil rights. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here into kind of the political forces that have, have kind of brought us to our present reality. Realizing that could be three or four podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um. I would say um, one way to say it is that is that the there is a increasing polarization between the American left and right. Um, I believe the studies are pretty clear that it's not quite symmetrical, that the radicalization is worse on the right than it is on the left but the center is eroding. Um, that the politics is, is increasingly not just about values differences and clashes. I mean, it's not just about, hey, I believe the policy on taxes should be A, and you believe the policy on taxes should be B, so we're going to have an argument about that. That's so normal. It's not about that anymore. It's about values like uh, moral values that get contested in politics like abortion or um, same-sex marriage. Um, and that's another step away just from policy because it's more value-laden. Um, but it's not even only about that. It's also about identity. It's about every election appears to be about my identity versus your identity um, and which identity will prevail in determining the direction of the country. So um, the conservative uh, identity is increasingly um, kind of ethno-Christian nationalist and increasingly angry at liberalizing trends in multiple areas, sometimes all derided under the label wokeness. And um, in the sense that it's intolerable that our democracy is producing the result that sometimes or even often the left wins uh, elections or uh, policy fights 
or or that people who have the values of the left are are leaders um, in various sectors of culture, including politics. And my analysis is that this is something that has really been inflamed since the 60s. So we're in a 60-year-old argument um, that the conservative side um, you know, ha has has thought that using the normal means of democratic politics was an appropriate strategy to win back the country as, and to win the policy fights as they saw them. But that what's relatively new in the last eight years, or especially since Trump, is a number of people who are who are demonstrating or articulating impatience with democracy itself, kind of like this. Um, we don't appear to be winning the culture wars adequately using democracy, we may need to fundamentally change, alter, or set aside democracy um, to uh, to win the fights that are most important. And Christians are in the middle of that. In an apocalyptic crisis situation, the niceties of a democracy may need to be set aside so that our values can prevail. You know, you have a very specified target group that you focus on. Um... You label them authoritarian reactionary Christians. You wrote authoritarian reactionary Christians uh, politics is sourced by visceral and reactive discomforts against recent social changes, as well as the perceived inability either to set the terms of their culture or perhaps even to defend their way of life against cultural or governmental left liberalism. Help us understand what you mean by by this term and this group. Yeah, Um Let's start with reactionary. That should be pretty easy. It's not a word that everybody uses every day, but but it basically means people who are defined by their negative reaction to existing trends. Um, you and our listeners may know people like this. Um, they are angry, fearful, um, and maybe um kind of on edge, tense all the time about what they perceive to be cultural changes that they really, really dislike or, or disagree with. Um, again, the term woke or wokeism is often now a shorthand for the changes that they don't like. It might have to do with um, uh, the norm, the, the multicultural nature of modern American society the decline of Christian influence and culture, the acceptance of uh, LGBTQ people um, and their relationships, um, the uh, increasing visibility of people of multiple races that are not white in leadership in various institutions in society, um, uh, the the fact that white people as a whole are shrinking in terms of their share of the population in large in, in the country. So, um, or uh, moral developments or the, the, the content of media, um, the uh, feminist uh, movements and uh, equality for women in, in all sectors of society, that's the goal. And in some ways, a lot of that goal has been achieved. So, um, feminism, gay rights, trans transgender uh, acceptance and advances, um, race, immigration, sexuality, um, a, a society that 
is no the society in which conservative white straight christians do not get to set the agenda of the conversation at least not without contest and in which other kinds of people are elected to high offices and <clears throat> and have considerable political and cultural power in multiple countries um the you might say the legacy power group of traditional white Christian men, male-dominated or patriarchal kind of um, sub-communities are deeply uncomfortable with these developments. And um, they have not had success in, in turning back the changes that they don't like. They have not had success through cultural strategies. They've not had success through political strategies for the most part or legal strategies. And so um, they're, they're really worried and they have, there's an industry of people who help them be worried in media, social media, and so on, on a daily basis and flaming the fears that they're losing the culture. And, and then you can really personalize that by saying you're, you, you know, they're trying to get to your children. They're trying to steal your children away from you, whether in some kind of conspiracy theory like QAnon or even just those public school teachers are trying to ruin your kids and teach them the values that you don't agree with, that kind of thing. So you, you would that helps to explain why a lot of the angst is focused on like school curriculums and things like that. The, the title of the book is Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Enemy is a is a very strong word. Um, how are authoritarian reactionary Christians an enemy of American democracy? Well, they they're not always. Um, if if uh, people who hold these values and are this negative about modern cultural changes play by the rules of um, democratic discourse and debate and voting and elections, then they're participants in democracy like anybody else. Um, but but when they um, you know seek to undermine democracy itself because they've lost confidence in democracy. Um, when they end up at the Capitol on January 6th, um, attacking police officers and threatening the lives of politicians that are there, hang Mike Pence, where's Nancy? Um, you know, when they resort to violence and threats of violence, intimidation and, and so on, then they can become enemies of democracy. And I also document in the book, certain kinds of scholars who are reconsidering in the way scholars do, but reconsidering whether democracy as it has been understood in this country is actually a good thing, whether it, whether whether a different paradigm would be better. Maybe a Puritan paradigm from the 17th century or maybe a medieval Catholic paradigm with an officially Christian state. In other words, there are scholars who are suggesting that democracy um, pluralistic liberal democracy should be replaced by something different. Um, and when they look to people like Viktor Orban in Hungary or Vladimir Putin in Russia or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil as the kind of models of the kind of politician that we should have, that we should be supporting, um, then they can be they can be heading to towards a threatening posture in relation to democracy. Authoritarian, I didn't say enough about that before. 
authoritarians don't really like pluralism, diversity, checks and balances, um, the contest of ideas in which you win some and you lose some, the contest of votes in which you win some and lose some. They want the centralization of power in the hands of their guy or their side. And authoritarianism is a threat to democracy and there's increasing signs of authoritarianism um, in this right-wing politics that I'm describing. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's not act like uh, this boils down to a 2016-2020 election endorsement of, of Donald Trump. There are layers to authoritarian reactionary Christians, right? But everybody wants to, to point to, to Donald Trump. Um, you noted its strategies now frequently involved in pushing of democracy to or beyond its limits playing in or beyond the gray zone between legality and illegality and a sliding towards autocracy and a sliding away from crucial democratic norms and, and practices. You're kind of alluding to some some forms of endorsement from other countries, but what are what are some tangible examples within the US that you can kind of point to as as kind of the layer of complexity around this group and and how they're approaching this this uh, this desire to kind of grab power, if you will, or maintain power? Um, in, there's, um, a variety of things, um, which, you know, the, some obvious things, the, the effort to fiddle with the electoral college certification after the 2020 election by setting up fake slates of electors, um, that was uh, both unprecedented and quite likely illegal, and that's why there's been an indictment on that matter in in Georgia, where where I am, and uh, 19 people indicted for that. And there's also been an indictment in Michigan, I believe, of people who were involved in that scheme there. So the manipulation of the electoral college process is an example of something that directly threatens our democracy. Um, now, some constitutional scholars are saying 
the electoral college itself is is really problematic. And so there's a constitutional problem itself. The idea that we don't get to directly elect our president, technically we elect electors who elect the president. And and that made that it's that itself is a legacy of the late 18th century that should probably be amended out of the constitution. But as long as it's there, there it has to be done fairly, uh, has to follow the rules, and and that was that was not done. Um, uh, or how about this? The Supreme Court um, has extraordinary amount of power, especially in a in a, a society as divided as ours is. There was a norm that when somebody resigned or died, um, that the president would nominate somebody um, and so that the court would not have a vacancy for a long period of time, the Senate would, would consider the nomination. So that was a norm. There was no law that said that was required. So Mitch McConnell, as majority leader in the Senate, broke that norm when Barack Obama nominated uh, Merrick Garland near the end of his term, and McConnell wouldn't even have the Senate consider that nominee. Um, this is a good example of a norm being broken. Um, and democracies consist of norms that are honored, not just laws that must be obeyed. So because, um, because he set that precedent, that leaves open the possibility that we will only ever get new Supreme Court nominees when the presidency and the Senate are held by the same party. Because that is not guaranteed to happen, we could end up with a Supreme Court of eight, seven, six, five, depending on the, the timing of uh, vacancies and, and who holds the office. You see how that is an example of you don't really want to go there in terms of the setting of that norm. Or even just this little norm. When a president leaves office, um, the exiting president accepts the election results, encourages his or her followers to acknowledge and honor those results, and then goes to the inauguration and sits there, however unhappily, while the new person is inaugurated. Right? Those are norms that help to ensure the peaceful transfer of power. If those norms erode, then you have you have the delegitimation of the new president in the in the hands, you know, in the eyes of millions of people. And possibly some small infinitesimal share of the of that now the part of the population that believes the new president isn't legitimate. Um, is at risk of radicalization against that party or that president, right? So it increases the risk of political violence. These are just examples. So democracies are, are held together by a tissue of laws, norms, um, practices that, that make it work. I say in the book that you don't really notice how important those are until they begin to erode or, or to be taken apart. And that's what we're witnessing right now. And the same thing has happened in other countries. There is an uh, idiom if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. Uh, in 2016, the language from the vast majority of white evangelicals was that God's will has been done uh, versus the 2020 election cycle was something altogether different. You wrote, 
Frustrated reactionary Christians tend towards a narrative of persecution, strategies of hunkering down or the retreating from society, perhaps nurturing uh, fantastical hopes of coming apocalyptic divine intervention. But when their team notches victories, these same Christians exult in, in the victory of God and plan for the further victories because the counter-revolution is never over and there's always another enemy to defeat. Help us understand the quacking of this duck. Um, I think that we've lost, a, a lot of Christians have lost um, the ability to see the events of history um, as the as the imperfect, uh, the imperfect flawed um, outcomes that that have always been the case in human history, and um, and to just kind of say that all things considered, it is best to live in a democracy in which everybody has a shot at power, everybody has a shot at having their voice heard, and you win some and you lose some. You graciously concede defeat when you lose. You grit your teeth at policy results that you don't like, and you regroup to organize to to do the democratic process the next day and the day after that. Um, for a lot of reasons, I think a significant chunk of conservative Christians uh, have grown to see our, the stakes of our politics as um, more apocalyptic, more cosmic good versus evil, God versus Satan. And so when their side wins, it's a victory for God. And when their side loses, it's a victory for the demonic. And um, uh, the conspiracy thinking and the, I mean, I think you can trace it partly back to the kind of who knows, even the apocalyptic left behind late great planet Earth end times stuff that has been in fundamentalism for uh, over 100 years um, and is part of the imagination of, of evangelical Christians, too. Um, the Pentecostal charismatic wing that has been growing in Christianity has a very vivid sense of the demonic and the angelic, of the supernatural, the things that are happening behind the events of the day and various kinds of interpretations of that. So. Everything is heightened. Everything is cosmically important. Um, and the idea that if you're dealing with a battle against the demonic, then maybe the rules are different. Maybe you don't have, you know, again, maybe the niceties of democratic politics are, are too superficial a strategy when you're dealing with a battle against the demonic, which is a lot of how the really right-wing Christians are looking at the world right now. And it helps to explain some of the rhetoric of January 6, 2021, and just of the, of politics in general. Um, it, but it's been part of the Christian rights vocabulary since the 70s, but it's just definitely ramped up um, in some scary ways. Uh, I just think Christians can't have that kind of a hysterical approach to politics. Uh, that's just not sustainable. It's not healthy. And it tends to lead to anti-democratic solutions, including supporting a tyrant strongman 
who doesn't really care about the niceties of the rule of law or democratic norms. He's just going to give us what we want and we will ride with him. One of the supporting pillars of, of this book is um, historic parallels to this moment, as, as long with current parallels. You look at the rise of the Nazi party in the post-World War II Germany, a nearly 70-year period in French history, the most recent support of Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Obviously, we want people to read this book for its historical analysis of these periods. However, not all these moments in our past can predict our future. But how can they caution us on a potential reality if we continue in this trajectory? Um, my my career began studying um, the Nazi era in Germany and the movement towards genocide and and how Christianity failed very badly in Germany. Um, and I was also interested for a long time in France my people are from France, so there's a there's a kind of a heritage there. Gushy is a French name, Gachet. Um, and uh, my my um, ancestors on my father's side were French Protestants who had to flee because of uh, Catholic persecution. Um, so to take France just as an example. I have a chapter on France, and I use it as a case study of this dynamic of. You had a, an officially Christian state that had a lot of problems with it, including oppressing uh, religious minorities like the Protestants. And then you have the French Revolution, which becomes aggressively secular and anti-church, um, setting France on over 100 years of, you might say, revolution and counter-revolution. Um, a kind of pro-church authoritarianism and anti-church authoritarianism that they struggled for the longest time to settle on what they were going to become. And eventually they became, France became a very secular post-Christian kind of politics and country. Um, but there were always Christians who were fiercely negative in reaction to what France was becoming. And it helped to destabilize French politics. And it's pretty clear, and I document various sources that say um, that deep internal division helped to weaken the country. And so when the Nazis invaded in 1940, they were already deeply internally divided. And the regime that ended up cooperating with the Nazis, the Vichy regime, was kind of an author well, it was an authoritarian um, Christian uh, reactionary government, the Vichy government. It looked a lot like what some people would like to have happen in our country. Um, the, the nature of the politics and of the leader. Um, similar story with some different wrinkles in Germany. Um, the, the big story is that Christians have not, have not reacted well. They're predictably not going to react well to changes that, that mean less uniform Christian uh, commitment on the part of the population, less political power for the church in society, a dethroning of, a, of an official relationship between the church and the state, um, the acceptance of equal rights for people who are not Christians or not our kind of Christians. Um, it's a long legacy of a Christian civilization with Christianity at the center. It goes back 
to the fourth century. And so I actually, I actually think it's almost miraculous that in the birth of the U.S., we did, Christians on the whole supported the arrangements that we came up with, separation of church and state, the First Amendment, the disestablishment of religion, and Baptists were in the middle of that. Baptists said, we, this is the kind of country that we want so we can avoid the errors of the past so that everybody can be free and have equal rights. Now, American democracy was flawed for sure, deeply flawed, but those were good, good settlements, good agreements. So this is the kind of the historical tale that I'm telling, and I'm asking Christians to remember why it was that we supported the U.S. Constitution and the separation of church and state and the First Amendment. Those are some of the things that are being challenged today on the right, and that's another reason why I think it's a pretty significant moment. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. You don't paint a, a hopeful image of change. Um, in fact, you wrote that seeing no repentance from radicalized authoritarian reactionaries, that you find it hard to be terribly hopeful of change of heart. And while Donald Trump and his culprits may be fully prosecuted, you wrote the deeper source of fervor that has gripped our politics will remain. What do you think it will take for, for radical change? Um, it feels like a fever. You know how when you're sick, you can't really negotiate with the fever. Um, it, it kills the patient or, or you eventually get better. I don't even know what the medicine is. Maybe the medicine is, <laughs> is, um, seeing the bad results uh, maybe the medicine is prosecution of people who actually were insurrectionists against the constitution um there's a lot of books coming out right now where people are diagnosing this malady on the part of our our right wing and and, and pleading for for reconsideration i mean i do know that the molten hot red right wing christian core is shrinking and as it shrinks, it radicalizes all the further. So it's like um, it doesn't have anything like a majority of the population, but it has a really, really angry minority um, and a more and more dangerous minority in some ways. Um, I think successive defeats at the ballot box, um, the democracy holding against some of the, the threats um, I talk about how the 2022 midterm elections actually were had a lot of good news in it in the U.S. because a lot of the Trump-type candidates lost in different state elections. Um, so the rule of law being enforced, authoritarians being defeated in free and fair elections, 
Trump finally exiting from the scene, all of that is important and helpful, but it, but the, you also have to have a new generation of Christians emerge to say, okay, we have to have a different way of approaching American public life. And what these folks have done is not what we're going to do. And actually, post-evangelicals are giving me a lot of hope because there's millions of people whose, whose parents and grandparents and some of their peers have bought into authoritarian, reactionary Christianity, and they don't want any part of it. It's one of the reasons why there's an exodus out of evangelicalism, because, because people see this politics and, and know that it's wrong. So that's the hope. But the idea that I'm going to go to the real reactionary right and say, hey, let me open scripture with you and have a conversation as to why this isn't really good politics, why we can do better, why it's not Christ-like, that kind of conversation, it appears to be um, not really possible right now. So, so it's a, it's a movement that must be defeated. Well, it's like you had my interview notes right in front of you, because that last part is exactly where I want to go next, which is, you know, this, this is a topic for an, another conversation. There are tremendous consequences to this political allegiance. And studies and surveys have shown again and again that those leaving the church are doing so because of political idolatry. Um, at what point do grieving grandparents and parents come to terms with their children and grandchildren um, that they've left either because of them or their silent complicity in these matters? And, and do you think that will help kind of move the needle, if you will? It might, but there's always another interpretation, right? You know, you can always say, you know, okay, so you've got your, say, 55-year-old parents and 80-year-old grandparents of your 25-year-old kids who won't go to church anymore because, because basically authoritarianism and, and uh, Trumpism is preached as doctrine now. Okay, so, so how does the 55-year-old parent and the 80-year-old grandparent interpret this? Well, the liberals have stolen another one. The liberals have gotten to our children. Um, it's those awful professors that name the school, right? It's those, it's the liberals on uh, social media. Um, so we just need to try all the harder to win back, win the culture and win the elections and, and suppress those voices that are stealing our children. In other words, there's always, always a self-validating way to interpret what's going on. But I mean, I teach the 25-year-olds and 20-year-olds and they come to me most of the time already alienated from this stuff that they're getting at their home church or from their parents or their grandparents. And I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't uh, create the problem as a professor. Like I just discover it when the kids walk into my classroom and they say, I can't even talk to my parents about politics anymore because they are around the bend. So, um, Case by case, family by family, sometimes parents and grandparents learn from their own children and grandchildren and, and say, well, maybe there's something that needs to be reconsidered here. But um, but no, often that doesn't happen. Yeah. I guess, lastly, you're, you're ultimately pointing Christians to be defenders of democracy, writing, it's time to press for democratic covenant renewal in lands where democracy has for years felt like 
tired inheritance rather than a vital contemporary commitment. Like any other covenant in human life, the covenant of democracy cannot be taken for granted, and it takes more than law codes and agreed procedures to sustain it. It may be time to renew our democratic covenant vows. What does this look like on a congregational level? In the book, I, I say that one of the strengths that Baptists historically bring to this discussion is our own democratic commitments. Um, CBF people know that we believe in congregational democracy. And CBF people know that uh, we don't want hierarchical authorities telling us how to how to vote, how to organize our congregations, who to call as pastor, um, or, or how to set our mission. This is done by the congregation. I describe democratic congregationalism as uh, basically a treasure um, that has characterized Baptists and has characterized uh, Baptists at their best in terms of what we can contribute to the public arena. We believe in um, constitutionalism and democratic um, processes. And we know that while it can be messy, we prefer democracy in self-government over authoritarianism. That's why we don't have bishops, cardinals, or popes. Um, so I think that congregations should, and leaders of congregations should talk with their people about their own polity. Here's why we do things this way. Here's why we have votes about these matters. Here's why majority rules is not a perfect system, but it's what we have. Um, and here's why we should be defenders of democracy in the political arena as well. Why? The Baptists demanded the separation of church and state and the First Amendment in the early days of this country, um, and why we should continue to support uh, the, the democratic order that has been carefully um, built over, you know, 250 years here. Um, I also think that we've learned that a democracy is it's never perfect, but it gets perfected as more and more people have more and more opportunity to participate on equal terms. And so um, making sure that congregational democracy is working fairly and justly in our churches, and then thinking about the implications of that for the public arena. I like the idea of democracy as a covenant. I noticed that it is language that Martin Luther King used about our own democracy. Um, I saw that Raphael Warnock, uh, our own senator here, Baptist pastor, is also using the language of democratic covenant, covenant renewal. We've learned that you cannot take the functioning of democracy for granted in this country. And so fight for it now or risk losing it for many generations to come. Our guest is Dr. David Gushy. The book is Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. If you want to stay connected with David, visit davidgushy.com. David, it's always a, a joy talking with you. Thank you for reminding us that democracy, while flawed, still appears to be the best available political ordering of human community, and that is still worth our support, even if necessary, by defending democracy from its Christian enemies. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for this good conversation. 
We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.